0: All right, so guys, I have a pretty cool episode coming down the hatch that I'm pretty excited about. Now, it's going to be a while. We're going to finish our John study first, but I want to kind of give you a teaser for it right here because it matters to our conversation today. What happens when you die? Sounds like a relatively easy question, right? Turns out it's not. In order to have that conversation, we've got to talk about the intermediate state. We've got to talk about soul sleep. We've got to talk about all kinds of scriptures just to figure out exactly what happens when the believer dies. But one such passage that relates to our conversation, you might not think it, but it does matter, is in Hebrews 4.12, which is going to matter in our conversation today. Listen to this. For the word of God is living and powerful, and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, and of joints and marrow. And there is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. See, what makes this passage so special is that it's not talking about how different the soul and spirit are, and the bones and the marrow are. No, this passage is talking about how much they're the same. The bones and the marrow are one thing together. The soul and the spirit bleed together in such a way that they're hard to distinguish. Some things are just impossible to distinguish from other things. What we're going to talk about today is an example of two things that are almost impossible to separate. They're so close that they're basically one. What's up, everybody? You're listening to the Redeeming the Time podcast. We're back at it with the book of John. So in the last several episodes, we've talked about the court narrative in the book of John. We've talked about witness and testimony. We talked about the truth, yada, yada, yada. The whole point of this study has been to ask and answer the question, who is this guy? Who is Jesus? That's what John is trying to deal with in this gospel. Now, one of the themes that he's used in his gospel, and possibly one of the most interesting ones, is the theme of oneness. So, Jesus claims a ton of times in this gospel to be equal or one with God, which is pretty nuts. So, let's just give the, uh, the introduction here. So, first of all, first thing we got to understand is in John 5.18. So, what's cool about John 5.18 is that it gives us a little bit of a window into uh, the Jewish culture. Part of this oneness theme that you have to get is that Jesus calls himself the Son of God. And in our culture, we tend to think of a descendant of someone as being uh, maybe an heir, but not so much equal with. For instance, the father is always in authority over the son. But in Hebrew culture, it's a little bit different because being an heir, being the firstborn, makes you equal to the father. And the key to that is right here in John five eighteen. Heck, let's start in 16. For this reason, the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him because he had done these things on the Sabbath. There's a whole story before this, but Jesus was doing stuff on the Sabbath. That's a big no-no. But Jesus answered them and said, My father has been working until now. And I have been working. I love this scene because people get all worked up and Jesus is like, all right, just calm down, calm down. I have the right to do this because my father does this. And then they lose their minds even more because he did not just make the situation better. Look at 18. Therefore, the Jews sought all the more to kill him because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. So notice how the Jews understand very clearly that if Jesus is making the claim that he is the son of God, that he is equal with God. And if you're equal with God, then you are God. All right. That's what we've got to understand as we dive into this whole idea of what it means to be one with God. Probably just a good heads up here. This is going to be another pretty academic one. Uh, we're going to get to some really deep stuff later on, but right now we're getting into the academic stuff. So, first of all, if you're looking at the book of John, it's one of the first things that you're going to notice is that oneness is in the very first line. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So, distinct but together. The same but distinct. Equal to part of but distinct from God right in the first line of this uh, of this book. So again we see this pattern before we've even left the introduction which lasts uh, through chapter 1 verse 18, we get to verse 14 and we see this pattern again and this is not uh, necessarily exclusive this isn't um not exclusive not all inclusive I'm not uh, giving you an exhaustive, that's the word I'm looking for. This is not an exhaustive list of everything uh, relating to oneness. But next highlight here is in chapter 1, verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So again, it's equating Jesus, the word in this case. We haven't been identified as Jesus here, but the word is equal to, has the glory of the Son of the father that's really important the only begotten of the father and then again our last verse in the the, uh, introduction which is 118 no one has seen god at any time the only begotten son who is in the bosom of the father he has declared him so we're talking clearly in this first introduction possibly the main running theme that john has put in his introduction is that there's something special going on between God the Son, Jesus, the Word, logos in Greek, and the Father, what is this special connection? They're together but separate, and of course, John is pulling off of one of the most, uh, one of the most mystical, I guess, passages in all of Scripture, which is the creation narrative. He's bringing in all this imagery right from the beginning. You're thinking of. God in the in the pre-created world and whatever shape that is the pre-created world and what's there you've got God the Father and you've got Jesus the Word and they're sharing before the beginning of time this really special connection this oneness and that's really dang cool and then the book just keeps drilling it in from there so in uh, 134 now we're talking about john the baptist testimony and john the baptist testifies to jesus as the son of god he sees it's at the jesus baptism he sees this dove come down the spirit like a dove and testifies that that's the lamb of god and john says well now i have testified this is indeed the son of god again we know in Hebrew culture that makes him equal with God and therefore God himself. Again, we can go to verse uh, in chapter 5 in verse 18. That's another good highlight. We skipped over a bunch right there. But 518, he makes himself equal with God and so the Jews want to kill him. By the way, I want to do a little side note here. So Jesus is working on the Sabbath and he makes this claim. He says, my father is working on the Sabbath and so I work on the Sabbath. And if you're like me, you're thinking, you're sitting there you're like, wait a minute, um, I thought God rested on the seventh day too. I thought that's why we're supposed to rest on the seventh day with all the Sabbath and all that jazz. Well, I know I never shut up about the Bible project here, um, but they're doing a phenomenal job with everything they do. I I cannot recommend them enough. They're the scholars that really know what they're talking about. Uh, I can get us the practical stuff. They can get you the really deep stuff. And so... What they're doing over there in their podcast right now is they're talking about the Sabbath, and something that you can uh, look back to in in the beginning of Genesis is that God creates the world and then he he rests. Uh, I think it's the word nuach. Uh, don't quote me on that. You listen to that podcast. You check that for yourself. But he kind of he's got this rest slash rule thing going on. So he's he's there. He's not creating anymore. He is stopped, but he is now still. Ruling, And in fact, part of the Genesis narrative is that we are all currently living in that seventh day reality. Creation is days one through six. And it says, and then there was evening and there was morning and that was the day. It doesn't say that on day seven. It's almost like day seven hasn't stopped yet. And we know that God is working in the day seven. And so there's this very interesting relationship between how work and the Sabbath works. And if you just want to have your mind blown, Uh, go listen to to their podcast on the Sabbath. So anyways, this is actually part of that story when Jesus is claiming that he can work on the Sabbath because God is working on the Sabbath, which doesn't really seem to sit right unless you do a lot of studying into the Sabbath, which is way cooler than I ever thought it would be. So anyways, I could go on for like hours about how many passages in John that Jesus claims to be equal with God and therefore God himself. So here's the deal. Here's the the summary, the the boiled-down point here, the really boiled-down point. First of all, no one can deny the fact that Jesus claimed to be the Son of God, which means that he claimed to be equal with God. You can argue whether or not he was or is God, depending on what you hold to be true, whether you believe Scripture, yada, yada, yada. But if we're going to acknowledge that Jesus existed, which we have historical evidence for, and that these are accurate documents, which there's a lot of evidence for, then Jesus definitely claimed to be the Son of God. Once we acknowledge that Jesus claimed to be equal with God, we have three options. First of all, Jesus believed it, and he was right. So if we think that Jesus believed that he was the Son of God and equal with God— and that he was correct, he is indeed the son of God, then you believe, all right? So, that's one option. We can believe that he believed it and it was true. Option number two, we can believe that he believed it, but he was wrong, all right? So, this is, option number two is, he's a psycho. He said that he was God. He had convinced himself somehow that he was God, but he was totally wrong. That's option number two. Option number three is he didn't believe it at all, but he still said it, in which case he was a liar, a deceiver. So in option number one, where we believe he's telling the truth and he is indeed exactly who he says he is, which is what I personally believe, and I would assume that most of you would believe, because again, I I assume that this is a, uh, a podcast targeted towards Christians. Maybe there's someone out there listening, trying to figure all this stuff out. The logical conclusion of John is that John believed that he was telling the truth, and just about everyone in this story believes that he's telling the truth, uh, minus, of course, the, uh, the quote-unquote antagonists of the story. But he was clearly telling the truth here as far as any evidence goes. But there are people who would make a claim that Jesus was not the Son of God, but then still follow his teachings, kind of. So, like, uh, Islam is an example of this. Islam believes that, um, that Jesus is not the Son of God. He's a prophet, he's important, but he's not the Son of God. Well, then he's a liar, or he's a psycho. In either case, he shouldn't be trusted. Here's the, it's the ultimatum. You either trust Jesus or you don't. If he was lying about being the Son of God, or if he was just a psycho and was wrong about being the Son of God, in either case, you cannot trust him. There's a reason that we don't have quotes from Kim Jong-un on our living room wall, okay? That's, he's, he's either a liar or he's psycho, one or the other. And in either case, he's not trustworthy. He is not a solid source of wisdom. So any religion, any even informal religion, people who just follow some of the teachings of Jesus, they acknowledge that he's cool, but... They don't think that he's God. Well, turns out he was either God or a liar or a psycho. And liar and psycho don't stack up to the evidence. So places where you're going to find that, again, Islam, uh, Hinduism. Hinduism, by my understanding, is kind of an eclectic religion. They kind of just take whatever they want, uh, especially like post-Gandhi. Gandhi looked up to Jesus a lot, but of course there's... A lot of other stuff in there too. They're definitely not Christians. So, in this Hinduism eclectic Christianity, nah, in this Hinduism like eclectic religion that just kind of boils everything down, they've got this thing going on where they kind of trust in the teachings of Jesus. But of course, his deity doesn't fit into the Hinduism equation at all with the three, uh, what's it, God, three goddesses? I've lost track of Hinduism, but he definitely doesn't fit into their. Uh, polytheistic deism ideology like he doesn't fit into that period and yet they believe some of his teachings well if he doesn't fit into that then again he was a liar and slash or psycho and shouldn't be trusted at all so if you're reading through this book the first one of the first things you have to acknowledge is that he claimed to be the son of god and so he either needs to have substance behind that claim or you need to just ignore him entirely And, of course, he has a lot of substance behind that claim. That's what the rest of the book is about. Uh, If you need more clarification on that, go listen to our other episodes. Like this whole court narrative uh, with witness, with truth, with evidence and proof and all this stuff. Uh, Just listen to the other episodes that we've got out so far. That's your proof. There are your witnesses. There is your evidence. So on, so forth. Second big takeaway from this pattern that we've got to look at so far before we move on to our next section here. Think about what kind of a statement oneness with God is. Like, what kind of relationship does that mean? Remember, a few minutes ago I mentioned how this book really uh, brings together uh, this idea from Genesis where it's pre-creation. And the Father and the Son, the, the Logos, the Word, and the Father are existing together in whatever that existence looks like and they've got kind of a special relationship there before we can move on we need to recognize how intimate and how awesome that special relationship is like wouldn't that be really cool it's just like you and god it's pretty sweet so anyways this theme of oneness runs through the entire book especially right there in the opening of john where it's calling back to genesis this pre-creation existence of god the total perfect unity, that total oneness. So obviously, Jesus has something really special going on with God the Father, and that point is something that John drills home. I challenge you to go find all the other places that talks about it. Uh, it'll take you forever, but that's why I've selected some verses here, but this is a pattern all through the book of John. But you see, this is only the first part of this narrative, because it all comes together at a point, and for us to really understand how that point works we need to understand something about storytelling. So, I'm totally a geek. I just, I love books. I love movies. I like video games. I love myself a good plot. One of the best plots I've ever heard of. You you ready for this? Maximum geek here. The best plot, or at least one of my favorite plots, is from Pokemon Mystery Dungeon 2. It's, It's a set of three games that all have the same plot. It's like this cult classic. Most people have never heard of it, and it sounds so out of nowhere. Like, it's a Pokemon game spinoff it's so weird why does anyone like that the plot is absolutely like mind-bogglingly good the way it makes you love its characters uh the plot twists the whole plot in general the way it takes you through its story and the way it just excites you the final boss is incredible Uh, The aesthetic of the game, the looks of it, the sounds of it, the music, it's all just so good. And it all fits right into the plot. To the point where, when I hear the music from this game still, it is like, it's a big response. Like, I need to stop what I'm doing and just focus in on this music for a minute. Because the music has become tied to just how awesome that plot is. Uh, Other good plots, um, because again, I'm a geek. I'm really into uh, the, The Flash, that CW series that's going on right now. Uh, we watch it on Netflix. Me and my sister watch it on Netflix. Uh, they're airing on season six, I think, right now. And I just, I can't wait. It's going to be forever before it comes out on Netflix. But I've been dodging spoilers like the plague. Because I just want to sit down and watch it. And the plot in those are, like, really, really good. Um, especially, like, the Savitar plot in... Season three. If you've seen this, you know what I'm talking about. Like, there are just some plots that are really good, and plots have a pattern. All right. I'm going somewhere with this. I'm not just going off some nerd rabbit hole. I almost went down a nerd rabbit hole, but we're not going that way. There's something really special about plots and the way they're designed. All right. So, plots usually come in three acts, we call them. Maybe you've heard of this in plays before. I'll I'll assume you don't know what this is almost every story comes in three acts. They're different uh, parts of the story that kind of have a different uh, purpose. So your act one, act one kind of sets the stage for the plot. You need to be introduced to the characters, who they are, the major uh, parts of their life. It sets the status quo so you understand what their life is. So like, uh, maybe they're a farm boy. Uh, yeah, that's a common one in a lot of uh, fantasy books. They're just they're living their regular life. They're a farm boy. Let's use uh, Aragon. Aragon's a good book that I've read before. He's just a dude. Uh, Aragon. He works on a farm, and then boom, we're introduced to the conflict in uh in the first act, act one. And the conflict is, all of a sudden, he's wrapped up into this whole uh, deal with being a hero, and he's got this dragon that he's attached to now, and he's got to figure out how to use magic and all this cool stuff. So in Act 1, we're introduced to the character, and we're introduced to the conflict. And then Act 2 makes up quite a bit of your body of your plot. This is where the conflict uh, pushes upwards and upwards and upwards, until the tension builds at the climax, right at the end of... The second act, or perhaps right at the beginning of the third act. The third act is where, like, your crazy action sequences, this is your big bad, you're finally fighting that guy, and all of it comes uh, to an awesome point. You know, this is when Thanos snaps his fingers and whatnot. Um, and then from there, the tension relaxes a little bit as you get some sort of a, of a resolution. So that is a plot. And the reason that we need to understand this is because part of this plot, I mean the whole plot of John, but especially when we're thinking about this whole oneness idea, comes at a certain part of the plot. And I need to be able to describe where that is. So in case that wasn't a very thorough description, because I'm not a film guy, uh, I don't have all the terminology to talk about that. I can recognize it, but I can't necessarily communicate it. So I'm going to communicate it to you in a way that uh, might sound a little bit different here. I am going to do for you a scene, an imaginary scene in an imaginary movie, and you've totally heard this scene before. You know exactly what's going on. If you've seen a movie before, you know this exact scene. This is going to be pretty geeky, but just roll with it. You'll get this stereotype. All right, you ready? Here we go. Our heroes have gone through a tough journey. They were once split up, by their disagreements. Now they are back together, and they have the jewel they need to get into the evil villain's lair. But in this scene, our heroes must overcome their differences. Our protagonist, our main character, opens the dialogue with a brash, main character decision. I really appreciate all of you helping me get this far, but from here on out, I'm going it alone. To which our supporting female, almost certainly not-so-subtle romantic interest character, replies. Like heck you are. Do you really think that we would go through all this trouble only to quit right at the end? We're with you all the way. And our inferior male support character chimes in in agreement. Yeah, I'm with her on this one. Besides, there's no way you can take on that big bad on your own. But our hero thinks otherwise. It's not that simple, guys. You aren't thinking. You guys realize that the second we waltz into that floating lava castle, there might not be any coming back. This is my battle. I should fight it alone. This makes our female support character very upset. Your battle? Your battle? Look here, mister. This whole thing may have started with you, but now we're just as much a part of this as you are. Don't you think for a minute that you can just cut us off here at the end? And again, our inferior male supports her. I think I see what's going on here. Ever since your father experimented with powers he couldn't control and turned into a psychomaniac mass murderer supervillain, you've been terrified of losing the people that are close to you. But it doesn't have to be that way, bro. As long as you have our memories in your heart, you'll never really lose us, even if we die horrible deaths. But if you go in alone, you'll definitely lose everything that you love and believe in. And, in this moment, our hero has an epiphany about his entire life that he hadn't realized until this 30-second conversation. You're right. I've been going solo for so long. I've forgotten what it's like to work with other people. The truth is, I care for you guys a lot, and I don't want to lose you. But if I do this without you, we'll all lose everything we've been fighting for. But as long as I fight with my friends, nothing can stand in our way. Are you guys ready to do this? Yeah! Yeah! Let's do this! And so, in this scene, our major themes, which are loss, teamwork, friendship, and standing up for what is right, all come together in a single scene. Alright, so you recognize that scene? That's pretty uh, entertaining, right? At least I hope it was entertaining. But you recognize this basic format of this scene. This is a crucial turning point in the story. It's like the point of inflection. It's where the story is going to take its next big turn. And that point lies somewhere in the book of John as well. Where does it fall? John chapter 17. So next, we're going to go take a really good look at John chapter 17 to understand not only how this whole oneness comes to its own climax, but how that story actually fits in to the bigger story of John. So, I've mentioned before how the book of John has these different sections. So, section 1 is the introduction. I've already talked about that in this episode. That's chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. Then we get to the book of signs. This is the majority of the book of John. This is the story of Jesus' ministry, going about doing his seven miracles... Uh, the seven witnesses are all here, yada, yada, yada. That's all in the Book of Signs. Well, actually, the seventh sign isn't in the Book of Signs. That's later on. Six of his seven signs, the seven witnesses, so on, so forth. Then, starting in chapter 13, we get to what's called the Farewell Discourse. This is when uh, Jesus is preparing his disciples for the fact that he's about to go through all the crucifixion. So, remember our plot. We're building tension right up to the end of act and we're getting to those final moments. At the end of the farewell discourse, we're going to start in chapter 17. In chapter 17, we're looking at the last bit of the farewell discourse, and he's actually stopped talking to his disciples and has started praying. And this prayer will take us through right up to act 3, the moment right up before our big fight with a big bad guy, which in this case is initiated with Judas. But before that, we have our special end of the second act scene our turning point, our point of inflection for the entire story where all the themes run through this one point. Let's read it. We're going to start just by reading 17 uh, verses 1 through 3. Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven, and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may also glorify you, as you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So, something I should mention is, I want to ask you this question. What is Jesus' mission, and what is our mission? I asked that at the end of the last episode, because I knew this is where I was going with this. What is the mission? The Jesus mission, the us mission, the Christ mission, the Christian mission. What is that mission? When we summarize the Christian faith, the go-to is John 3.16. But God so loved the world that he gave his only son that anyone who believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That's kind of our go-to. And I get that. That's a really good summary single verse. But I'd argue that's not really a good way once you start to understand uh, the Bible a little bit more. I'd argue that's not really a good way to go about uh, summarizing the Christian faith. I think it comes down to right here in John chapter 17, and part of it is right here. Because eternal life, when we think about that, you know, if you don't have the Christian idea, if you don't have the biblical idea for what that means, John 3.16 is still going to be pretty confusing to you. But right here in John 17, he's explained what John 3.16 means. What is everlasting life? What is eternal life? And Jesus defines it like this, and this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That true eternal life is to exist with God forever. Dude, that's really cool. It's almost like we're getting to this point. We've read through the book of John, and we're getting this hammered over and over and over and over and over again. Jesus is God. Jesus is God. He's the Son of God. He's one with God. Like By the time you get here, we get it. And then he starts praying this prayer, and all of a sudden you're you're paying attention. You're like, whoa, 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 wait a minute. All of a sudden, are we included with this? Let's keep reading. I hope this has caught your attention, because it should. This is one of the coolest passages in the entire Bible, in my opinion. Skip down to verse 6. I have manifested your name. I should mention that first section, 1 through 5, Jesus is praying for himself. In this section right here, he's praying for the disciples. So it goes... Uh, Jesus, then the disciples, and then all believers. So Jesus is now praying for the disciples. I have manifested your name to the men whom you've given me out of the world. They were yours, you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Notice how in verse 6 he says, I have manifested your name. He's talking about being the manifestation, the presence of God on earth. Once again, we're talking about his oneness. Like, we get it, Jesus. We get it. One with God, one with God, one with God. It's been hammered in. You're saying, yes, Tyler, we get this. You keep talking about it. And now we went off all all the track. We had this weird sketch thing that was like a parody of every movie. Where are we going with this? There's got to be somewhere we're going with this. We are going somewhere with this. Skip down again. All right, now he's praying for everyone. This is the entire section he prays for all believers. I'm just going to stop and read this and try not to stop and nerd out about how cool this passage is. All right, you ready? Buckle in. Buckle up. Nobody says buckle in. Buckle up. Verse 20. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their, the disciples, word. That they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me, and I in you. That they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me, and the glory which you gave me, I Have given them, that they may be one just as we are one. I and them, and you and me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me, and loved them as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you gave me, may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundations of the world. Oh, righteous father, the world has not known you, but I have known you. And these have known that you sent me and I have declared to them your name and will declare it that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. All right. Take a breath. A lot of pronouns. But that was awesome. But that's pretty sweet, dude. Did you pick up on everything that was in there? I guarantee you didn't. There's so much. So much. What do you mean? That they may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you? With the same love that you have loved me since the foundation of the earth? Like, dude, that is sick stuff. This oneness that we've been reading about. This super special awesome connection that jesus the son has with god the father that we've been pounded into throughout this entire book he comes around at the climax this turning point of the story and says here's the mission this is the reason that i have come i pray that we all become one just as you and i are one this is a huge deal It doesn't get bigger than this. This is the entire mission of Jesus Christ and the entire mission of the church wrapped up into a single chapter of scripture. Oneness between God and his people. Holy moly. That was so intense that my voice hurts now. I feel like I want to spoil the next series that we're going to do on redeeming the time so i'm not sure how soon i'm going to do this i'm debating whether or not i want to do a season break but here's the deal the next series without a doubt that i'm doing on redeeming the time and if you're thinking "What does the reading through doing a book study on the gospel of john have to do with the process of redeeming the time using your time wisely the answer is that the foundation of it has to be a thorough understanding of the identity of Jesus Christ. Then we move on to what I'm going to do a series on, the kingdom. That's going to be a long series, and it's going to be a heck of a lot of fun, and here's why. The kingdom is the mission. The kingdom is what we are supposed to be building. What that looks like and how that affects our daily lives is super important. But we can't do anything about that until we We understand who Jesus is. That's why we're in John now. That kingdom study is going to be epic. I can't wait. But here we are with the ultimate mission of Jesus and the ultimate mission of Christians here and now. And what it's always been, what it's been for 2,000 years, what it's going to be until the end of time. The Christian mission of helping to grow this kingdom, this special place, this Eden, where God and his people can be together as one. Oneness becomes the most important theme in the book of John, which is the most important theme in the entire Bible. We use a curriculum. So I help out at, uh, in the kids' church, uh, at the church that I go to, and the curriculum we use with them is a curriculum uh, from Phil Vischer. Now, you might not know that name, but you know who this guy is. Phil Vischer is the guy behind VeggieTales. So VeggieTales, of course, is not as big as it used to be, it's gone through some, uh, some rough stages of development through its life, uh, but it's pretty uh, safe to say that VeggieTales was huge, it was definitely a part of my growing up in uh, Christian uh, tradition at that time, you know, in the 90s and early 2000s, but anyways, Phil Vischer, this guy's an absolute genius. He has a curriculum as part of his newer uh, ministry organization, uh, which is Jelly Telly Don't quote me on that. That'll be in the description. I'll link uh, to Phil Vischer's stuff. But anyways, in our kids' church, we use part of his curriculum, which is called the What's in the Bible. And they summarize the Bible like this. It's God's rescue story. It's the, the plan or the, the story of God rescuing his people so that there can be this special connection. And that's that theme, that idea of the rescue story is how they look at every single section of the Bible. And of course, John is no different. We're looking at the most climactic part of the rescue story. We've got Jesus here making the way for there to be Oneness, that's really special and really cool. That this oneness, that super intimate beyond human connection that Jesus and God were able to share in their own special oneness before creation, before the foundation of the earth. Jesus says and prays for that we can also have with each other and with God Jesus, the whole package, the entire trinity, a perfect, undefiled, unfiltered, unbarricaded relationship with God, period. That's incredible. And that's the theme of oneness in John's gospel. So let's talk about this just for one more minute. I would make a really strong case that John 17 needs to be on our mind a lot more. And I'm going to talk about this a lot when we get to that kingdom study eventually, but right now just think about how we use John 316 when you see or hear John 316 first of all stop and actually think about it for a second because a lot of us can just rattle that off without thinking about it that's part of why i think John 316 has lost its power is that we have lost our wonder of John 316 but there's another part to this and that is that it's just it doesn't offer a lot of depth uh, it doesn't explain everything. It gives you like a taste of everything. It talks about how awesome it is that Jesus came and that the hope is eternal life, but it doesn't define what eternal life is. And it doesn't really give us a good uh, overall kind of circular, thorough understanding of what the ideal is. Where John 17, the whole chapter drives in this idea of oneness. The mission is togetherness. And that's really cool. So if you're really trying to explain to someone, if you're trying to witness to someone, which I would recommend, and I'm hoping you did because you listened to the whole thing about witness last week, then I would recommend just sitting down with them if you get the chance. And at least if you're not reading John 17, then paraphrase the idea of John 17 that this whole Christian existence is about the oneness with God, which we can achieve only one way, the way, the truth, and the life, jesus christ that is the oneness with god that we could have which is super super cool that is all the time that we have for this episode this has been just an incredible incredible story i love reading this we've only got a couple more episodes in john Uh, probably be done by the end of the year. If we get done early, I might even do a Christmas episode. We'll see. Or maybe I'll skip a week to do a Christmas episode. Uh, But this has been just absolutely incredible. And I think oneness is one of the biggest themes in John and most crucial to understand. We're going to come back to that a lot. Like I I said, we're going to come back to that a lot when we get to the kingdom. In the meantime, if you didn't catch the last episode, go listen to that. Uh, I and making a push to get the following over to Twitter because Facebook is a bad platform. So if you want news, if you want updates, you can go follow us on any social media, Facebook, Twitter, or you can just go to the website itself. But if you want behind the scenes and other stuff like that, you're going to have to go to Twitter. Twitter's just the better platform. I'm only going to be putting that content on Twitter, so check that out. Check out uh, Credo's article, Peace with God. You can check that out at redeemingthetime.online slash articles slash peace with God, one word. I'll link that in the description. Anyways, this is Tyler Vigue. For now, we're done here. I wish you guys a good week, and I hope that you redeem it wisely. Have a good one.